I like that believe thing you have above your TV. My sister hung it up. I don't know oh, why. Oh, that, that wasn't you? No, that wasn't me. It looks exactly like your taste. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. The gang is all here like Lethal Weapon 4. We're reassembled today on Secret Movie Club Podcast 77. I will reveal my lucky number. Uh, We are talking about Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko and cult movies. And we've been here before a little bit, way early on in the podcast series, but there's a distinction. Early on, we did some podcasts about So Crazy They're Good, and there may be overlap. And you guys can frame it however you want. You can totally blow up and swat away my frame. But one of the things about Donnie Darko was it was a movie that wasn't really discovered until it went on tape and DVD. And so one of the aspects of cult movies tend to be movies that doesn't light up the world when it comes out, but then suddenly over time, suddenly it becomes this huge phenomenon. But you guys can define that however you want. Who's with us today? Hey, it's Daniel. It's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Oh, America. I'm on a lawn chair. That's it. Everything you say is brilliant, Edwin. Everything is a work of art in my world. Oh, that's brilliant, too. Did you just hear that? You're an effing quote machine. You're like the Abe Lincoln of the Secret Movie Club podcast. You're going to be in, like, Goodreads and quotables when people go to SMC podcast. It'll just be all Edwin quotes. And you're probably going to get murdered in a theater. No. <laughs> Connor. Well, they had, they had to bring in a freaking army to take me out because they can't destroy this train. The, the quotes are going to keep on coming, Secret Movie Clubbers. It's wonderful to have you. This week, when you hear this podcast, Friday night, we are doing at the Million Dollar Theater tonight, Tim Burton's Beetlejuice, uh, which will be one of the topics of our next, next podcast, and John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. And so many of the co-stars of Big Trouble in Little China are going to be there. We have Rain, one of the three brothers. Peter Kwong is going to be there. We have six shooter Gerald Okamura, who's the famous guy with all the gold bullets and the, the mustache. He's going to be there. We also have the stunt choreographer is coming. Uh, we have Peter Lau, Eric Lee. They keep calling. So we're going to have a bunch of big trouble in Little China actors who are going to be in the lobby. They're going to do a Q&A. They're going to talk about the making of the movie. And who knows? By the time Friday comes around, who knows who else will be there? Maybe John Carpenter? No, I shouldn't. I don't want to hint that. I don't think Carpenter comes out for much of anything except interviews on Halloween kills. And to buy cigarettes. I'm honored. I can't wait to talk to them because I love big trouble in Little China. It along with The Thing are probably, hands down, my two favorite Carpenter movies. No, that's not true. Assault is dynamite. Anyway, and then Saturday, we are doing our evolution of David Cronenberg body horror at the Million Dollar Theater. We are going to do Shivers, also known as They Came From Within, followed by Rabid, followed by The Brood, followed by The Fly, in chronological order. So it's one of those rare times, too, and all those movies are 90 minutes, so it's one of those rare times you can actually watch a director in one day evolve. Then next week is crazy. Tuesday we're doing Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse on 35mm, one of my favorite Kiyoshi Kurosawa movies along with Cure. Wednesday, thanks to Connor Lloyd Cruz, we have famous producer Brian Yuzna doing a Q&A in between two of his most famous movies, the Stuart Gordon directed H.P. Lovecraft joints Reanimator and From Beyond on 35mm at the Secret Movie Club and then Thursday we begin our just 
crazy we own the million dollar theater uh halloweenathon halloweenathon with hocus pocus and the craft that's thursday everything i'm saying is on 35 millimeter by the way and then when we do our next podcast you'll hear about friday and saturday but i will tell you that friday is phantasm with don coscarelli writer director in the house doing a q a and night of the living dead and then saturday we are doing six movies just look it up because next week i'll pump it up but saturday october 30th leading into october 31st is off the chain it is going to be a lot of work we're doing william castle gimmicks we're flying skeletons we're shocking people in their seats we're showing cult japanese movies we're showing intense david lynch movies we're doing the original halloween on 35 which everyone keeps telling me how did i get the 35 millimeter print of that i didn't know that that was a big deal and then uh, we are doing sam raimi's evil dead too and as always you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com podcast at secretmovieclub.com get your tickets on eventbrite secret movie club eventbrite and you can go to secretmovieclub.com we got tv shows we got podcasts we got blogs we got designs we got downloadable posters we got t-shirts yeah i'm wearing the rainer werner fassbender shirt we made a shirt for rainer werner fassbender because he deserves it and by the way it turned into a hot seller who knew Today, we're talking about Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko and cult movies. Richard Kelly, who went to the same film school I did, USC grad, his first feature film was Donnie Darko. And interestingly, it came out, unfortunately, right in between Columbine and right around the same time as 9-11. And it was already an uphill climb for people to buy into the movie. It was one of Jake Gyllenhaal's, probably his breakout role. It basically focuses on a high schooler named Donnie Darko who has clear mental health issues. But at the same time, he also is very insightful and perceptive in a way other people aren't. And at the beginning of the movie, a jet engine crashes through his house. He manages to survive that. But then suddenly he has visions of a demonic rabbit who tell him to do things like burn down the house of a local motivational speaker. He has relationships with his teachers. He starts a relationship with Jenna Malone, who herself is dealing with dysfunction. And all of this is leading up to something that might be apocalyptic and cataclysmic because the whole movie counts down to Halloween. This movie at the time wasn't given a great release. Not a lot of people saw it, but in its life, and I hate calling it an afterlife because I don't think that applies. I think if a movie gets big whenever, it's big in its lifespan. When Donnie Darko came out on VHS and DVD, suddenly it became kind of the movie that every person was like, you got to see this. I don't know what this is, but you got to see it. And year by year, it grew until now Donnie Darko, like Big Lebowski in a weird way, is just one of these movies that if you show it, hundreds of people will come. We had a great audience. It was our biggest audience that night. We had almost 200 people and we're still dealing with COVID. Come to see Donnie Darko. People had the shirts. They had the tattoos. So this in some ways is the definition of a cult movie. I kind of had a similar experience. I was shown this movie. I was shown the director's cut of this movie by a friend in high school and it was one of the early movies that was like an introduction to film as art for me not that I hadn't watched movies that I would consider film as art but the stuff I had watched before was more blockbuster stuff which I do still think is art like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Ghostbusters and things like that but this was kind of different this made me think of it like that as opposed to just entertainment 
as I grow up, other than a couple of like the weird little digital effects that they took out for the director's cut, I think for the most part, I like the theatrical cut more now. What did they take out? Did they take out the blobs that come out of people's chests? No, that's there. The two effects they take out in the director's cut is when the blob turns into a hand and like beckons him. And then whenever he puts his face in the blob and his eyes get real big, those effects are taken out in the director's cut, which I'm okay with. They also show like little like segments from the book that he's reading the entire movie, which explains a little more explicitly kind of what's happening, which is, I think, I like knowing that stuff, but I think now rewatching it, I like watching the version without that stuff, but I do also still like knowing it, which is a contradiction, I guess. So they're both worth a watch. I don't think you can go wrong either way, honestly. It's amazing that your best friend, Richard Kelly, he went to school with, in his first movie, he has such control in this movie. Like, it's so confident. Everything feels so precise. It does not feel like a first movie to me. By the way, just FYI, do you know that Richard Kelly has come to Secret Movie Club a few times? He was there at Barry Lyndon. He was super nice, very nice, very humble. He was just there to see Barry Lyndon. I can see that. He seems like a chill dude. I might talk, I'm going to probably talk about another movie of his a little later. I like this movie a lot. I feel like it's a movie a lot of people that has like a really good mass appeal to despite how weird it is because even if you don't necessarily buy into the weirdness of what's going on, it's also really like funny and fun to watch. And emotional. Yeah, and emotional, yeah. All the characters are really great. I mean, obviously, Jake Gyllenhaal. I really love uh, Mary McDonnell as his mother, uh, who she's great in this. She also, I love her more so in um, Battlestar Galactica. And Beth Grant as the... Um, the gym teacher, <laughs> obsessed with God and motivational speaking. Yeah, she always plays really terrible, terrible older women. Karen before there was Karen. I'm in a similar thing. I... And shared with Connor and Edwin, I, I'm a I'm a big physical media person. And in high school, right before I got a car, and then when I got a car, every week, Circuit City, Best Buy, all these big box stores would have like DVD sales. It'd be like, you know, here's 10 movies that are $4 a piece. And it was about the cost of renting a movie at Blockbuster at that point, when it was still around. And I would just go buy the movies. And Donnie Darko was one of those movies that would, was often on sale that I picked up. And the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is like really weird. It doesn't make any sense. And but very cool. And then it, it was one of those movies that had the DVD cover was, I think it was like Jake Gyllenhaal's face and like the image of Frank the rabbit behind him. And it was one of those that if it was on your shelf in the right way, when your friends were over, they'd be like, what is that? I've never heard of that thing. And it became kind of this thing. You're like, Oh, I could show my friends something kind of cool. My first girlfriend was like obsessed with it. So it became just like a thing. She make you put on a bunny suit. No, oh. you don't have to share that stuff. That's inappropriate of me to ask. Thank you. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'll be talking to HR. I think Connor put it really well. It does not feel like a first movie, but it also is like this very unique entity in that it, I've always thought it felt like a dream, almost more like a nightmare. I, I saw someone describe it as like the visual representation of sleep paralysis, where like Jake Gyllenhaal's character is never in control. Every decision he makes is is really at the control of Frank. And we're not really sure what Frank is or what he's doing. And it's sort of this, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at the movie. And I'd be curious for the for the three of you. It's almost hard to describe. It is very unique in its own way. You can feel the influences that it has on it, but it feels like Kelly's voice is so strong. And so like, because even like someone like Paul Thomas Anderson, who I love, like you can feel the other voices in like his first couple movies, like almost overpower his. You don't feel that here, I don't think. When I've talked to people about it, people try to describe it as like a genre. And I think it's kind of like this slight coming of age high school 
maybe like a dark comedy, or it's like this sort of take on mental illness, or it's just like this wild time travel science fiction thing about the 1980s. And they sort of all work because every one of those you pick has a, a through line that makes it make sense. Its staying power is also in that you can kind of watch it as a multitude of different things. And you're right. And that's really rare. I think that's most movies have a pretty definitive thing that you classify it as. But this is sort of this weird anomaly. It's also part of the pantheon of stuff that I think when stuff's great like this, you get this thing where there is an era of your life where it's the best thing. And then there's the area of your life, especially if you went to film school, where it's actually the worst thing. It's actually <laughs> a big old turd. And then there's the area of your life after that where you're like, oh, actually, I'm just being a little, I'm being a little turd boy. It's great. And you come back around to it. Oh, man, that's interesting. So you had a period, Daniel, where you were down on it? In college, it was one of those things where I think a lot of like people that were coming to the city from smaller towns, like it was a, Connor and I went to film school during like the internet had finally become a thing that was all, you're always online. The internet in conjunction with school was not quite there, but was becoming there. And so your access to like movies and stuff like this was some of it was through the internet at that point. So it's like you would come to school and they'd be like, what's your favorite movie? And some people in class would be like, oh, Donnie Darko. It's like this big cult thing. It's a dorm room movie. Yeah. The fr- it's like a freshman dorm room poster movie. I never turned against it, but I totally understand see what you mean. Like it's a it's a movie that you love in high school when you're in a small town <laughs> and you're the only one who knows about it. And then you go to college and you realize that movie that you thought no one else knows about it, everybody knows about that movie. It like hurts your ego. It makes you feel smaller, I think, in a weird way. And it takes you until like you mature out of that to understand that that's kind of BS. It, it's weird. You'll like turn on it, though, because someone else says something negative and you're like so, at least for me, like insecure about like your taste now because you're just like, my world's been shifted. And you're like, yeah, you're right. That is bad. And regardless, you can think it's bad. But like for me, I had like this thing where I was like, oh, it's bad. And then I watched it down the line and I was like, oh, this is great. Like I, I feel very silly having turned against it when I did. But yeah, it's just, it's like this weird anomaly. I think it's sort of the perfect little thesis thing about cult films because it's it gets to exist in all these different little planes. I heard about it when I was in high school. See how this movie's only founded in high school days? It's so weird. It hits you in high school the best. I know. It, it, it was always said in these group of certain kids in high school but one of my friends told me about it, and of course, I ended up going to Amoeba, buying it for three ninety nine, watching it, didn't get what the hell was happening. I think I'm the only person that did not like it for what it was. But that was in 2010, I think. How old were you? 12? No, no, I was, I was in my teen years. 13 years old. And then years, years later, decades later, decades later, you probably get the Vista. <laughs> I bowed out because I didn't want to watch that. And then you brought it again. I ended up watching it. I'm OK for what it is. I, I, I respect what it is. It's not my jam. That's, I want to be clear. It is. You are not wrong to dislike. You can dislike. I don't want to. I want to sound like I was trying to discredit your opinion. No, no. I just I just don't get the movie at all. I just I desperately want to discredit your opinion. I know. I know, Connor. Uh, when you say it's not your jam, what about it? Isn't your jam. I don't know. Is this the whole setting about it? It's like, for me, I thought it was set in the 90s or 2000s because it does not feel like it's set in the 80s at all. It's kind of weird. And some of the dialogue won't held up today. The one part that did fascinate me is, is about the time travel and the final part of the movie, if uh, if it actually did happen. And I talked to you about it. And in my, in my mind, I say it, everything did happen. What he did, he sacrificed himself to save the world and went back in time, go back to the room, and next thing you know, he, he accepts the consequence. He, 
he sacrificed himself. If you haven't seen it, I'd be curious what you think about the director's cut. People told me about that. They, they told me to watch the director's cut. I think you would like that more because it's a little more explicit about things, which is, I think, both a good and a bad thing. It just depends on who you are. I'll probably buy the Blu-ray or DVD, but it's going to take me a while to get this picture because, in my opinion, it, it's this is like, what if David Lynch made a teenager movie? And this is what this movie is. I gave it a 6 out of 10. That's a fair rating. I, I don't think I'll watch it again. Probably the director's cut. I want you to come up with your own classification system. Because eventually, the big media is going to take you away from us. And you're going to become the star of this like new Siskel and Ebert-like critic show. And so you should just get on that right now. It should be like, if you really love the movie, you'd be like, I'd return 10 of my Blu-rays to watch this movie again. And if you don't like it, you'd be like, I wouldn't give away any of my Blu-rays for this movie. So how many Blu-rays would you give away? How many DVDs would you give away to watch this movie again? Um, none. I, I would not give anything away. I, 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 uh, I keep my valuable. I think a better way to phrase it is, how many DVDs would you give up? In order to ensure this movie doesn't get erased from existence. Whoa. I think that puts a real value on it. You would be able to get the DVDs back. You could get them back. You could buy them back. I'm just saying you would have to like give, give them away, essentially, like to friends, essentially. Probably like five. Just to give context, how many of your DVDs would you give up to make sure Heaven's Gate exists? 20. <laughs> okay. That gives us a good gauge of what five means. It means he's giving it like a three. But we don't necessarily know because there could be stuff that like, we don't know where the bottom is. Well, I know what the bottom is. Look, we can do it right now. How many DVDs would you give up for Persona? None. Right? There you go. No, there, there's an even further bottom. How many DVDs would you give up to make sure Persona doesn't exist? hundred. Whoa! That's what I'm saying. So negative a hundred, a five is pretty good. Anyway, let's talk about Donnie Darko, Craig. I love the film. I've always loved the film. I've never seen the director's cut for the very reason that I actually like the mystery. And I think that a lot of it is in the theatrical cut. Like you said, the book is in the theatrical cut. And the woman who wrote the book is in the theatrical cut. And in fact, watching it this last time, like you were saying, Connor, I was so impressed at how Richard Kelly was going for the big themes. When Donnie talks to his therapist, I mean, he's talking about how can there be a loving God in a world that <laughs> creates such agony? There are these conversations about if there is no God, what would, you know, the transcendent plane be? You can see he's sort of maybe wrestling with sci-fi and this and that. I love the love relationship between him and uh, Jenna Malone, personally. I love the satire. I mean, the movie's filled with lines that just bust me up, like when the gym teacher's like, I doubt your commitment to sports. Sparkle motion. <laughs> for some reason, that line just makes me laugh that he's going for politics because he's talking about sort of small town. The parents are sort of pro Reagan and the kids. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal is going for Dukakis. And he, he's really cramming the movie with everything. It, it's sort of that great first film thing where he's like, I'm going to get it all in. <laughs> I'm going to get it all into this one. And, you know, I think he was 26 when he wrote and directed it. It's also this weird thing where I think it, it lands. It, he lands the plane. No pun intended. I mean, like, how are you going to finish the circle on this, homie? I mean, you're, the first half of the movie is time travel and mental illness and a demonic bunny and a countdown. And you're like, is the third act going to live up to this? And it does. To me, I always talk to people. And again, it's a Rorschach test. You know, we always talk about this. I don't think it's any error 
or just random thing that the double bill is Evil Dead and The Last Temptation of Christ. I mean, first of all, who does that as a double bill? We should do that. You'd be happy and I'd be happy. But, you know, when you see Evil Dead and Last Temptation of Christ, if you're a movie person, you're like, what kind of double bill is this? It's an awesome double bill. I love both those movies. So all I mean to say is that I see Donnie in the end as someone who makes a huge sacrifice for, uh, you know, in a way, probably the biggest thing being a huge sacrifice so that Jenna Malone can live. Because in a weird way, when you think about it, if he makes that sacrifice, then Patrick Swayze, who plays a pedophile, doesn't get discovered. So it's this weird thing, too, of what's resolved, what's not resolved, who lives, who doesn't live. I just think it's a very uh, rich film. I love it. So Donnie Darko, like we said, is this movie. And as you guys were telling your personal stories about now, lots and lots of people love this film, talk about this film. This film is a touchstone for a certain kind of movie making. I recently discovered a film that has not reached cult status, but it feels like it's up there with it. And that film is The Spirit of 76. Recommended it to me by a certain person that I'm seeing. She told me about this movie. Your boo? Yes, yes, Craig, my boo. <laughs> I watched it six times, six times, and I looked everywhere, and no one has even known about this movie's existence. And I'm trying to put it out there once this whole Halloween thing is over, which I will post on the Secret Movie Club page pretty damn soon so like it can explode and have a new life again. Tell us about it. Spirit of 76. You were telling me Sofia Coppola's in this thing? Sofia Coppola did the costume design. I think she was 20 or 19 when she did it. It's produced by Susie Landau, daughter of Martin Landau, written by Roman Coppola, produced by Roman Coppola. It's a, a strange movie about people from the future. Their races died because America's culture has disappeared, their history, the constitution. And the only man that knows about it dies and told him about it. So they have to go back to the year 1776 on the 4th of July, the day of the Constitution. But instead of going back to 1776, they go back to 1976, the year, the disco era, the rock and roll, the stoners, the peace and love, man. It's just a glorious, glorious movie. Deals in it. And David Cassidy. Yeah, my my issue here is that I was looking at my list that I keep on Letterboxd, private, of what I consider my favorite movies, loosely ranked. And as I was going down, I was also on the Wikipedia page, a list of cult films. And the exception to my list was ones that weren't on that list. So the issue here is that I think most of the movies I bring up would be considered cult films. I think The Evil Dead totally counts as something like that. I think in general, I would say cult, it's usually a genre film, and it's usually specifically a genre film that didn't find initial mainstream success, but found a sort of secondary success after its sort of initial release. Would it be fair to say also that people who get it really get it, but it's also possibly a movie that people who don't get it just don't get it? Movies that have a smaller niche audience, but a passionate niche audience as opposed to you know like a blockbuster movie which has a passionate audience but a pretty broad audience though obviously these lines become blurred over time 
depending on what it is, depending on what's becoming commercialized, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to briefly talk about Southland Tales. I haven't got to rewatch it. I'm rereading the graphic novel, which I still have, which apparently is actually hard to find now. So it's kind of cool. I have that by my desk that I read when I get tired of working a little bit here and there. I haven't actually rewatched it in a long time. So maybe I'll rewatch it here after rereading the graphic novel and be like, this sucks. But people don't know Southland Tales was Richard Kelly's sophomore film that he made that was not as well received as Donnie Darko that I think people are also kind of coming around on it more and more and more. It's a much more satirical and less horror-ish movie that still walks a lot of the same lines of, you know, politics and time travel that Donnie Darko does that has a plot that I really truly do not know how to describe. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson plays an actor. Sarah Michelle Gellar plays a porn star. And Sean William Scott plays twins, one of whom is a cop, the other whom might also be a cop. I forget. There's a whole bunch of other people, including uh, Holmes Osborne coming back. Uh, he's the dad in Donnie Darko. He plays this like senator guy. It's really good and weird. And the movie is parts four, five, and six, and the graphic novel is parts one, two, and three, though I don't necessarily think you have to, kind of similar to like the director's cut thing, you don't necessarily have to have seen or read the graphic novel to appreciate and enjoy the movie. I don't think I uh, read it until after I watched the movie. And like Donnie Darko, it's very ambitious, very wild. It definitely has a even bigger scope than Donnie Darko and an even more bold choice of tones and decisions that he's making, which I think alienated a lot of people, but I thought uh, is really fun. And I will report back when I do rewatch it. I need to see it. I actually just picked up the Arrow video because you always talk about it. So when it arrives in the mail, I will be partaking. I bought that long, not long ago too, and I'm almost done with the my rereading of the graphic novel. So I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it. I'll probably there's like a slightly longer cut. I'll probably watch that cut first. Did he write the graphic novel too? He did. Yeah. One movie that I really love that I don't know that we've talked about, it, and weirdly, it was one of those movies that created the moniker Midnight Movie. I am a big fan of Alejandro Jodorowsky. And even though he's, he's a bit complicated now and, and we'll have to, you know, supposedly in El Topo, which was this movie John Lennon loved, that was a Midnight Movie, which is this crazy, apocalyptic, psychedelic Western. Alejandro Jodorowsky. He said, he said it weirdly. And then he did a movie called Holy Mountain. And then he did a movie called Santa Sangre. And then he was quiet for 20 years. He was going to do Dune. People know about this. There's a great doc on it. He didn't ultimately get to do it. Then all these years passed after Santa Sangre. And then he, he's come back and done these two movies in his later life, in his 80s. The one that I've seen, it's called The Dance of Reality. But anyway, what makes El Topo problematic is like Last Tango in Paris, now uh, some actors have come forward to say that they were forced into non consensual sex in the movie and I need to look that up and research that so audience please look it up take what I'm saying with a grain of salt I don't think anyone came forward on Holy Mountain there are no real sex scenes in Holy Mountain so that's why I'm going to talk about Holy Mountain and put El Topo to the side until I learn more about it but Jodorowsky is this filmmaker who he believes that film is art and he does not think about the commercial motive whatsoever. He comes out of mime and theater and avant-garde theater. And Holy Mountain is this crazy movie from the mid-70s where 
the plot essentially is that these people are chosen based on the tarot and the astrology cards. And Jodorowsky actually does tarot. If you go to him, I don't know if he still does it. He lives in Paris. You can get Jodorowsky to do your tarot. But these people chosen by astrology and tarot cards have to ascend the holy mountain to basically encounter God or encounter spiritual enlightenment. But the movie also is about sex. It also has the craziest production design you'll ever see. A lot of Jodorowsky movies are about uh, self-awareness and coming to a, a point of self-awareness. But he does it in this crazy 70s, garish, avant-garde theater way. Everything is it, visually Jodorowsky's movies are just fascinating to watch. And he then went on to make this movie called Sana Sangre, where this guy gets his arms decapitated. And then basically someone starts killing and becomes his arms. The imagery is very violent, but very beautiful. It's also indescribable. There's an elephant burial in Sana Sangre that I, I, I can't explain to you. There's also a scene where frogs tell the history of Mexico and then explode. You tell other people and they're like, what? But I will say to everybody, if you want to see some cult movies that will blow your mind, I cannot recommend Holy Mountain and, and Santa Sangre enough. They're very violent. Be prepared. The imagery is very shocking, but it, it's incredible. El Topo, I do also really love, but because of the claims about non-consensual sex, like Last Tango of Paris, I've got to investigate that. So, In my teenage years, especially, I was obsessed with, with Nail and I, which is Richard E. Grant's um, debut film. And it's like this wild British comedy that is, I think, incredible and still holds up like nobody's business. And being from Tulsa, one of our like local legends that became that you would sort of do was that Weird Al Yankovic shot UHF in and around Tulsa. And so that was like we didn't have a lot. We had the Outsiders and we had UHF. So UHF was like my friend and I's favorite thing because it was this like, oh, we go to the diner from UHF. And it's like this magical little piece of cult thing. But I think the, the concept of cult movies is so interesting now because Cult films sort of exist in this thing where, like Evil Dead and stuff especially, there was no way to see them until home video became a thing. Seeing them was this impossible thing. So this word of mouth thing that existed for them was, how can I find how to see this? And that started to change with physical media. But especially now, a movie that didn't do too well drops on Netflix and becomes the talk of Twitter for... A duration of period because it's now accessible to everyone or he gets like a beautiful shout factory or vinegar syndrome blu-ray when you get you get companies like that you have stuff like when you have criterion that's putting out sort of classic international stuff that's sort of these great pieces of cinema with a lot of history around them and this education on the disc and then you have plays like vinegar syndrome who put out trash like spooky yeah but it's it's and it's just it's a fascinating thing because I, I was reading like some of the discourse about like for example halloween kills came out last week and there's some discourse about it about people's reaction to it and if it betrays the concept of Halloween and that it's the worst thing people have seen in some regards. But it's fascinating that we have these companies like Arrow and Vinegar Syndrome and Shot Factory that put out these movies that have terrible reviews, but people love them. And I think that it's tied a lot to horror. There's like a really, there's a subsection of horror that people are drawn to and love because it's just so much fun. There's the You can feel that the people making it were having as much time or that it was such a disaster that the outcome is so great because it was this disaster. But the concept of cult is so interesting because accessibility of stuff has changed so much that something you didn't discover in theaters, like Ridley Scott's The Last Duel is out. And it's, even in LA, finding a screening of it is really difficult. Like it's just sort of being kind of flown under the radar as if it doesn't exist. And so I think that when it pops to streaming services, we'll find some life. Because I think it. I've only heard really interesting good things about it. 
the last cult thing I can think of, let me go to that. Scott Pilgrim versus the world, 2010 opening night, me and four friends went to see it in an empty theater. And I thought that movie was going to blow up and it found life over the years and then hit Netflix and like, I don't know, the mid 2010s and really found life. And is now this like a loved will sell out a midnight screening beloved picture. But I think accessibility has really changed the concept of cult. And the idea is still there that it something that maybe underperformed or was misunderstood. You have like pop star, you have, or you have something like what was I'm I'm blanking on the name. What was the movie Connor we saw at the Draft House with Matthew McConaughey? Serenity. Serenity, a movie that was like that no one knew how to describe because they thought it was just this awful whatever thing. That if you kind of reappraise it as like this, actually maybe it's this incredible comedy finds new life but i think the yeah the whole cult idea is i feel really warped now and it just because we have such great access to stuff and we can see the things that our friends are obsessed with connor curates these insane monday night screenings of stuff i've never heard of and like nothing but trouble the film debut and finale of dan Aykroyd. <laughs> but you get stuff that like you sort of need a friend or a, a writer a film critic to be like hey check this cool thing out and experience it with a group of like-minded people, and it's it's like nothing you've ever seen. It is interesting to think how media has changed. Martin Scorsese used to say that if you wanted to see like the Red Shoes, Michael Powell and Pressburger's Red Shoes, you had to wait till it came back to a theater or on TV. And so he would just run to the theater. He'd like stay up till midnight to watch it on TV. And now you can get the red shoes, you know, if you have the money or you have the streaming service. The funny thing about what you're saying with cult movies is there was probably something really exciting about someone pointing this anonymous VHS cassette out or we got to go hunt video stores to find it. And there was probably something about the search and the getting of the physical media. And now that's gone. But what Connor does on Mondays, you know, like Connor, all the things you're talking about, I've never heard of. Like you talk, what was that Canadian movie? You always talk about the road trip sex movie that doesn't know what it is. Ryan's babe. Ryan's babe. And you know, spookies. I'm totally down to see that. And you know, so Connor is almost serving a curatorial DJ role now in the new media of, hey, let's check this thing out. So I don't want to take too much credit for those specifically because those were all recommended to me by other sources. But But isn't that how cult works? Someone recommends and someone recommends and amplifies. It'll be interesting to see what happens, what the new cult movies are. Cats. Pop culture and final thoughts. Who wants to go? I've been tackling down a lot of movies, man. I've been seen. I've been going. I've been everywhere. I got the Blu-ray of The Exorcist with theatrical cut. So, f*** you, freaking, and your extended whatever. I have... The version that people want to see. <laughs> also, Street Fire at the New Bev was incredible. One of the best theater experiences ever. Saw Alien at 35 at the Academy Museum. Also incredible. Best theater experience. I watched so many Mickey Rourke movies. Year of the Dragon was badass. Desperate Hours sucked. I watched Black Rain like three times. Kick-ass Michael Douglas movie. Are you going to watch Mickey Rourke and Kim Basinger steam it up in nine and a half weeks? I have it. I'm not going to watch it. And I've been having fun with the Instagram, posting a lot of great stuff. Like yesterday, I posted Drew Barrymore blowing shit up with her mind. Fire starter. It was pretty cool. Also, I met Selma Blair. That was pretty big. Yeah, Hellboy. I thought I told her that Hellboy 2 was a big thing in my childhood because my dad took me to go see it because he, he introduced me to the first one. I found about it, this game called Ambition, a Minuet in Power. 
It's a kind of visual novel dating game style game where you play a woman in like 17, like pre-revolution France, like right when it's happening. And it's about going to parties and gossiping and exerting control over like the bourgeoisie and the military and the church. And it's uh, really good, actually. I think it just came out like this last year. I, I can't recommend it enough. How does she survive the revolution? Um, you can side with the revolution, and you can move different the church or move the military to help the revolution. And there can be different outcomes. You can help the revolution not win. It has some alternate history endings. It's really good. And I saw the new James Bond movie, which I liked quite a bit. I don't think it's as good as Casino Royale. But I think it might be the second best Daniel Craig Bond movie. And it's, so many Bond movies feel like them kind of backwards adapting something else. I think that Casino Royale to me is just a perfect like 2000s era Bond movie. And this is something different, which we can't really talk about because he goes back in time at the end and lives his life with Vesper Lind. And then he shows up at the end with an old man and gives his gun to the new James Bond. What? Oops. I spoiled it. But anyways, the other Craig Bond movies, you can clearly see Quantum of Solace is the Bourne movies. Skyfall is the Dark Knight. And Spectre is, for some reason, them deciding to do an MCU-style, like, mega continuity. But this one, it's also doing something unique. But I think, like, Automatic Secret Service, which is also doing something more specific and a little off the beaten path, I think it does it more successfully. I liked it a lot. And you can watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Maybe sometimes. Who knows? I'm also hot on the Bond train. I think it's my third favorite of Craig's, but I think the first hour of it is like top tier Bond overall. That first hour rips. And then it kind of simmers a little bit for me, but I had a great time. It also, if you are comfortable going out, a lot of it was shot on IMAX and it's like full screen. I think it's like one nine or whatever. And it's wild. It's very cool. It's interesting to see, we, you know, we've gone from like these singular Bond movies into this sort of like structured story thing for better or for worse. But it's it's cool to have like a, something that sort of wraps up a person playing Bond with a story that sort of encompasses their entire careers. And I think it's kind of works emotionally. But I'm hot on the, the Mike Flanagan trail. I think he's like one of the most talented genre filmmakers working today. And his new his newest series on Netflix, Midnight Mass, is very good. Can't spoil it. It's kind of horror thriller thing about a small island community that starts to experience these miraculous events. I'll just read the synopsis. Experience miraculous events and frightening omens after this young priest arrives. And it's like seven episodes and is, I think it's pretty popular, at least from the stuff that I've seen. And it's, which is really interesting because it is like huge monologues, discussions about the concept of belief and faith. And how religion defines you, but also how like personal belief and belief in yourself and forgiveness and all these like really interesting concepts that sort of circulate if you're raised in a religious background. And I think it's both pro it and against it in equal parts. And it's outside of almost every character is sort of catered to have empathy so that it doesn't feel like it's picking a side minus maybe one character. But it is just seems to really try to be saying something and it feels incredibly personal from him. And I think... I'm very much on the Flanagan train and it's 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 really something. I had another friend who just recently said I needed to see it. I haven't really dived into Mike Flanagan and I've just heard so many good things now and he just seems to be churning it out. I would imagine I haven't watched interviews yet, but I would imagine he was raised Catholic because he's got this very specific know-how of like the small details that make the organization work. And I think it shows. It never feels 
like someone who's like read about it and put it. It feels like the little things that like someone who was an altar boy would know. I will say that this last week we did Suspiria Hellraiser, which may have been the most attended secret movie club event we've ever done in our history. It may have exceeded the Vista's capacity. I didn't realize that until it was happening, but that was a milestone. But what was interesting was that I programmed Hellraiser and I hadn't seen it, but I, I had enough faith in it. I knew that a lot of people wanted to see it. I was able to get a 35 millimeter print of it and I watched it with the audience for the first time. And I thought it was ridiculous in a lot of ways. And there was ridiculous in it that's almost like intentionally you sort of laugh like when the Cenobites show up one of the Cenobites has sunglasses for some reason and he's just like there in a leather jacket and, and sunglasses but at the same time Clive Barker has a real specific voice and I did like the movie actually quite a bit I thought it was very unsettling but it was one of the few times I'd seen someone try to do sex horror and I think David Cronenberg is different but Clive Barker was getting into S&M and he was getting into like sexual obsession and he was getting into like people who are pleasure and pain. And I was telling someone at the end that, you know, I'm married. I've got three kids. When, when you get into your 40s, you know, anything could happen. Count no man. You know, the future is always unwritten. Who knows? But at this point, you sort of know who you are sexually. But when you watch Hellraiser, when I watched Hellraiser, I really was sort of like, wow, that's right. There's this S&M subculture. There's this whole subculture of sexuality that's about pleasure and pain. And it was sort of fascinating to me to see. So I was telling people, I thought the story was ridiculous, but I thought that the practical effects were great. I thought the imagination was great. I think Clive Barker is more a guy who works on the subconscious and the imagination. I thought that was great. And then at the end, I was like, what's this skeleton bird? And then there was like fire Jesus and fire Jesus took the box. And I was like, man, he threw in skeleton bird and fire Jesus in the last minute of the movie as a work of imagination. It was an unsettling, crazy work. Pinhead, who never gets called Pinhead in the first movie. He's a fascinating character. He's not the villain of the piece, which is sort of crazy that if you don't know the movie, the villain of the piece are the two humans, which is great. So thank you, everybody. Another wide ranging conversation. As always, you can follow us, please, at Secret Movie Club. We're across the social media. You can go to secretmovieclub.com. You can get tickets on Eventbrite. Uh, we are already in our third season of Cinema 35. So this week, Gold Rush came out. Uh, you can watch those for free. Just go Cinema 35, Secret Movie Club, and you can watch trivia, deep dives. Daniel and I are also wrapping up, finally, the Channel 35 Secret Movie Club short film festival. We just recorded all of the filmmakers yesterday talking about their movies, which was actually a great conversation. So within the next month or two, we will release the 2021 Secret Movie Club Channel 35 short film fest and thank Daniel Ott for doing all of the logistical work on that. Thank you, Daniel. And as always, uh, this episode was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz, our chief creative content officer. Edwin killed it with his music mix uh, this past weekend at the Suspiria Hell Razor. If you go to our social media, you'll see Edwin pumping both fists as he danced in the music booth, uh, which was an image I had to take a photo of. And uh, next week, Secret Movie Club Podcast 78 is actually going to be uh, about Beetlejuice and director Tim Burton, who I am fascinated with because there's a period of Tim Burton I love, and then the rest I'm not as hot on. And I will try to be just upfront about that. But Beetlejuice.
Beetlejuice is a movie I love. Tonight, audience, we will be showing Beetlejuice and then Big Trouble in Little China, both on 35mm. And Big Trouble in Little China, at this point, already has four to five of the actors, stunt coordinators, many of the biggest co-stars in the movie, outside of the big stars. I, I, I want to make sure I'm not... I don't. You don't think Kurt Russell is going to be there. But uh, we're going to have an awesome Q&A ahead of the movies. Thank you, guys. As always, have a great week. Take care, guys. Bye. See you soon. America. All right, here we go. How do you pronounce the name Alejandro Jodorowsky? Alejandro Jodorowsky. Oh! Try this air right. Yeah, there you go. Jodorowsky. It's silent. Edwin wins. I hope we did you get that? Did you guys hear yeah! it? Yeah! You lose! <laughs>